All right, we'll go ahead and I'll pray and we'll get started because we're going to do two chapters today, so I should get going. Lord, I just thank you so much uh, that we get to gather together as your people and just praise your holy name, Lord, and just reflect on how great you are and what you've done. And even this morning and in this study, uh, look at the things you did even to bring about the saving grace of your son through your uh, chosen line of people, Lord. It's just amazing the way your hand works, and I pray that as we see it work in these individual lives, that we would reflect on the ways that you work in our own lives and realize that you are just as active, you are just as involved, you have not turned us loose and, and are watching to see what we do, Lord. You've, you've planned well beforehand the good deeds that we do, that we would walk in them, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you treat us graciously and with compassion, that you use broken vessels like uh, these men and women that we're studying, Lord, for it gives us hope that you could use people like ourselves. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. So we're in uh, Genesis 25 and 26. And like I said, we're going to try and cover these two chapters. And just as a as a tool for you to use as we go through just through this just remember it's it's there's two things going on here now one is it, the the biggest most important thing is uh the seed the the one who's to come to crush the serpent is the one we're looking forward to and that's been going on from generation to generation most recently passing from Abraham to Isaac as, and that's going to even be more solidified that that's the role of Isaac as we cover these two chapters. Then we also have, uh, so this line that the seed's coming through. So keep that in mind. Uh, so far, Genesis is pointing us to that seed by, by this is the line that it's coming through. And then also, uh, there is now this promise that's tied to that of the land that uh, Abraham has promised. And we've covered that so far, Abraham owns how much of the land of promise? A little bit. A little bit. And what's there? Not much. A grave. A grave. Yeah. So that's what they've got so far. And he's got this promise of Isaac. He's got the one son that this line is going to come through. And so bear that in mind as we go forward. And I think these two chapters together help solidify that that's what's going on, especially as far as the line is concerned. And even the, the challenges to that that we see today in our world uh, between even Isaac and uh, Ishmael as it carries forward to today as we see between Jew and Muslim. All right, so we'll start here in verse 25 and we'll kind of cover some, some paragraphs at a time as we move forward, or uh, 25 verse 1. Um, now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim and Latushim and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephor and Hanak and Abada and Eldah. All these were the sons of Keturah. Now, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. 
So Abraham ends up having a second wife here. Um, and uh, she gives him six sons. And then it lists some of the children they have. But these are not the chosen people. We've, we've established that. Isaac is the one who the line's going to come from. In fact, to clarify this even further, Abraham gives gifts to this line and sends them off to the east. And this, these, these people, these descendants of Abraham, remember he was going to be the father of more than just one nation. These people move off uh, to the east and tradition would have that they actually moved to India and are they're, they're some of the people that would have lived in uh, India and given us that population that we see today. Um, there's a decent chance that uh, this Keturah is actually of uh, the descent of Ham, um, and uh, Abraham would be whose descent between Ham, Shem, and Japheth? Shem. So he's Semitic or, or Shemitic. Um, and so it's a combination of those two lines, and that gets, they, they get sent away to the east, probably in India, but all of Abraham's personal wealth is given to his son, and it, it clarifies that a little bit in that he, it's not like he rejects his other children and gives them nothing and just kicks them out. Um, he gives them gifts, and Abraham had incredible wealth that we've learned so far, and uh, his, his children are taken care of. But he separates the lines. He separates very clearly this land is for Isaac. This is where he's going to stay. He's going to be the head of the household moving on. He's the one who will inherit my possessions and what I have. There's a clear separation of geography here that God is making a, a point about. That Isaac is the one who will have the land and Isaac is the line that the seed will come from. He is the one chosen by God. It's easier to be chosen by God when, when you are the only one standing. So Sarah had the one son and Sarah was the one who was promised the line would come through. So the fact that we see Sarah, or that we see Isaac as being selected out here is of, of no great shock. And I say that as kind of a, a uh, pre, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, it just left me. Foreshadowing. It's a foreshadowing of what we're going to see here later in the chapter. And I think that's why it's important that we touch on it now. So if we get to verse 7, then these are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life, and he was gathered to his people. Is, can I get slide on? The slides, perfect. Okay, we'll come back to it. Um, and he was gathered to his people. So he lives 175 years. And it's noted that he is old and satisfied. Certainly not all people who are old are happy and satisfied. Uh, I work in a field where I see that fairly frequently. Um, it's not uncommon, and it must be somewhat of a temptation, to be old and bitter. Um, old and dissatisfied. Old and uh, resentful. Certainly, we've covered that Abraham was blessed by God and he had much wealth, but the real promises of God, of this land and the nations that were going to flow from him, that were going to come from him, have not taken fruition. In fact, we see all the sons and, of 
his second wife, and we see, we're going to see the sons of Ishmael. Ishmael ends up having 12 children, 12 sons who are princes and have their own cities. And Abraham sees all this, but he doesn't see, he doesn't see the line itself come forward yet. He's got one little piece of land and on that land sits a tomb. And that's what he has at this point. But it says that he is happy and satisfied, even though he didn't see everything come to pass. So 1 Timothy 6, if we turn over there real quick, and I think it's Appropriate that we look at this. What does it mean to be satisfied? You would think in our day and age, I'm up here, I've got this amazing calfskin Bible, and I've got my notes all on an iPad that I just had to email to myself, and everything we have like that. You'd think that satisfaction would be something that we would come by easily in our lives, but I think. I speak for all of us when I say it's, it actually may make things a little more difficult. So verse, uh, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And think of Abraham as we read through this. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with, with many griefs. Certainly in Abraham's life, he had the opportunity to pursue wealth. He had the opportunity as a great, I guess it'd be almost like a prince or a great sheik there in Palestine to have taken land. He's the one that went and saved Lot and rescued the kings of Sodom and the surrounding communities when uh, they were taken captive and carried off north. Abraham had the opportunity to pursue great wealth, but his focus was not on that. It was on the promises of God. His focus was on uh, being faithful. His focus was on obedience. And God, in turn, had blessed Abraham greatly. He didn't pursue the wealth. The wealth came. I had the opportunity to teach. I used to have the opportunity to teach practice management to my, to my students. And one of the things I always taught them is if you take very good care of people and you do business the way business should be done and you apply these principles and these things that have been proven over time on process change and and practice improvement, then money takes care of itself every time. You won't, money will never be an issue to you. But if you pursue money, you're going to find that it actually stifles your practice, it ruins your relationship with patients, and it destroys that which uh, brings you joy, and you just won't find it. You'll be a very miserable person. And I have some ex- specific examples where I've seen that in, in physicians' lives, and, and uh it's a good thing. It's a true thing that we see in this world, but it's also a promise of God there in First Timothy. And we see that lived out here in Abraham. So Abraham lived again to a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And then he's gathered to his people. And there's that term, gathered to his people. There's, there's, he's identified with his people. He is loved by his people. It's this embrace that takes place at death. It's a, it's a wonderful description. Can we go to, not that one, not that one. This one. 
So Abraham lives to 175 years of age. And I just wanted to kind of remind you guys of this. Um, I know this is a long way away. This is Adam, 930 years. And then Adam dies here. And then we have Noah, whose Noah's father was alive when Adam was alive. Okay. And then we have Noah here. And here's the flood. Methuselah, who is the longest living, is, dies just before the flood. Noah's father dies just before the flood. And then we have Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And specifically Shem here comes out here. So Sarah, who we talked about dying last week, is there. Shem is alive when Sarah dies. In fact, Shem is alive. This, is, this, this part really kind of blew my mind. Is that depending on where Shem lived at the time, he may have been one of the people invited to dinner when Eliezer meets Rebecca. That's that, totally possible. Um, probably you'd think we'd be told that in scripture if that was the case. Um, but these people live and they have time periods that their life we're told about and then we know nothing about them after. But just be aware that between the marriage of Rebekah and Isaac we have, and the death of Abraham, we have the death of Shem. That this is the handing off, I think, the thing that, that I take away from this, is this is the handing off. Now people who are alive during the flood are, are gone. And now we're in a different era entirely. Uh, the, patri- the, the time of the patriarchs has begun um, with Abraham passing everything here in this chapter off to his son Isaac and Isaac and Rebecca moving forward with, with their children. So kind of blew my mind. Can you go to the map? Okay, so here's the map and we'll keep it on this page for a little while. Um, but here's, here's Palestine. Here's where Israel would be, the promised land, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea, Egypt down here. Um, this map has, when they went up to find Rebekah, actually, that uh, Laban lives up in Haran. Um, they don't know for sure. It's somewhere in Mesopotamia, somewhere between where Abraham came from originally in Ur, in Ur up to Haran. Um, it could be any of those or the two extremes. We don't know. So when Abraham sends his uh, Keturah's children to the east, we're talking about sending them to the east, like east of Babylon would be the idea that's taking place there. So then we have the picture here in uh, verse 9. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave, buried Abraham in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zor, the Hittite, facing Mamre the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Beer Lahoi Roy, which is down below the Dead Sea in kind of that area. Good guess. Um, What I find interesting here is the fact that Isaac and Ishmael come to bury Abraham their father Abraham. And so the relationship must not have been too terribly strained. 
Uh, Ishmael here would be an old man. Um, remember, he's, uh, what, 17 to 20 years older than Isaac. Um, Isaac is uh, getting up there in years, as, or is, yeah, Isaac is more than 40 years old now. So I guess Ishmael is starting to be an older man. Um, but the relationship is still here, not only between the two brothers, but also um, between Abraham and uh, both of his sons are present. There is a distinction, though, that's given to us in verse 11 about which son it is that is the important one. It's that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived there still. The location is still there in the area that's been promised to Abraham. And we're going to see that's not where Ishmael is at all. The other issue here that we see is uh, that Abraham is buried with Sarah, his wife, which is generally accepted that those two are in the tomb that's there. You can go visit the tomb. Um, I don't think the bodies are still there. I think they got, anyway, the tomb is still there and it's accepted that Abraham and Sarah are buried together. And that becomes important because again, that is the line that matters most. So those that are going to argue that no, the promise comes through Ishmael, that Ishmael's the one that's, that's sacrificed as, as Muslims would have one believe, have a challenge here in dealing with the fact that it's Abraham and Sarah that are the ones who are, are buried together. And some would actually say that Keturah, this I found interesting, Keturah was actually Hagar, another name for Hagar. Uh, but that's not the case here as we're going to see Hagar mentioned further in this same passage. Um, and she wouldn't be mentioned by two different names. So that's kind of the picture you see there of the, the funeral for Abraham and the sons come back together. They, they uh, bury their father together. The relationship is still there, even if probably strained. And certainly in the future, it's going to be strained. And it's Abraham and Sarah that are buried together. And Isaac is the one who is given the promise, even though that relationship is still present. So verse 12, now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar... There she's mentioned in the same passage as Keturah. Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's maid, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nebioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Abdi, Adbeel, and Midsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, Hadad, and Tema, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their camps. Twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Hivilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt. As one goes toward Assyria, he settled in defiance to his relatives. So he's settling down here, kind of down the Sinai Peninsula and on up. The Philistines are going to be settled along the coast here. Sorry. Philistines are along the coast. Down here is Ishmael's 12 sons in defiance to, directly against, who's going to become the uh, 12 sons of Jacob, the son of Isaac, a generation later. So it is interesting, though, that, that Ishmael does have 12 sons, just as, as Jacob does. And uh, we're going to see that as we move forward. Um, but again, you'll notice that the line that is not 
the chosen line does not stay in the land. They get moved off. They get pushed off, and that's the land that becomes their land, that land to the south and to the west. Then we have verse 19. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean to be his wife. So if we can jump to the, the family tree thing. It's really hard to find a good family tree of this group. Um, because, and I don't know that this one shows it really well. So Abraham and Sarah, different mothers, same father, have Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah, who's the daughter of Bethuel, but she also has a line that doesn't show it. I picked, a, I picked not a good one, but she is twice related to Nahor, a generation apart in her parents, and, but is still in along that same line that Isaac marries into. Then when you have Jacob, he's going to marry Leah and Rachel, who are the nieces of his mother. So one of the things we see with that is going to become very clear here. Just note that this line is the line that they keep on purposefully going back to to find their wives. They're going back to the line of Terah to find their, their wives. So we have... You said purposely, but why? Because there is needed to be a separation from the, from the people that are in the land. So a purity, of the, a purity of the line is what God is after, not a purity of genetics as much as a purity of the... Uh, Customs of the people and the, uh, their staying Semitic, the promises that flow through Shem. Um, it's, it's an interesting deal, but it also means that these are very unique people. Because what happens, so from a scientific genetics standpoint, you're talking about recessive traits. So if I have a recessive gene and Elise has the same recessive gene, then that's going to be expressed. If one of us doesn't, then there's no chance of that gene being expressed. And so um, it does actually cause them to become a very distinct people. And it's not that they're the only Semitic people. No, not at all. Because there are other Semitic people. Yes. This is, a, this is the family group that God has chosen to bring these people out of. And we aren't given a whole lot of clarity aside from don't let them, don't let them get a wife from these people that live in the land. And they need to come from back in your father's land. Now also, that whole thing about um, Shem still being alive, we see that the genetics are not that far off from where they started, which means there's a lot more purity, there's a lot fewer recessive genes being expressed, and there's a lot less mutations that take over time that naturally take place because of uh, things degrade over time. So it's not to the same level that we'd see it now. Now, I was talking to Ethan about this. Um, UNMC actually made a name for itself in uh, the Middle East because there's a disease where children are born without their intestines, their small bowel. Yeah. Um, and 
it comes because there's a recessive gene and they do still marry like this. And they've done it for enough generations that you run, run into these genes being expressed and there's some real problems. Here we're early enough on and it happens for a short enough period of time. It's not a, not a huge deal. The most important thing of this though is that it's staying within the family and the, the traditions of the family and the things that God is finding important and we aren't again told all of what those are, are being kept quote unquote pure in the line. Um, it's not that one group of people is better than another group of people by uh, anything more than the grace of God. Um, we just don't know entirely. But it is interesting to look back and say, wow, all these people were related to each other in more than one way. Um, and my iPad timed out. There we go. So we see here that um, Isaac has... Isaac and Rebekah were married when Isaac was 40. And in verse 21, Isaac prays to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why am I then this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. So after 20 years, we're told from the time they were married to the time, well, 19 years, uh, to the time Rebecca conceived these twins, um, they were infertile. They were unable to have children. And it's just once again the reminder that the gift of children is clearly from God, that God controls such things. Uh, what is interesting to me is the, the idea of, is Rebecca aware that she has twins in her? Um, I've talked to moms with twins, and some of them are very much aware that there is more than one in there um, jumping around. Um, and yet sometimes when they aren't as active, you don't know it until they're born. But uh, God doesn't tell her, by the way, you've got twins. He's, he's, he implies it certainly in his comment about it. But God does, in fact explain to her not only what's going on inside her now, but what's going to take place moving forward. Um, before either child has even done anything, God explains what the future relationship will be with each other and what the outcome of that relationship is to be. God certainly knows the behaviors and the actions, and we're going to see that with Esau here selling his birthright, but God knows the behaviors and actions of these two boys. But it goes beyond that. God is choosing whom the line is going to flow through and who it is that the seed is going to come from. Like I said, it's easy to do that with Isaac when there's just one child of Sarah. Now there are two sons that this could flow through. And which will be the one? Will it be the oldest? Well, that would be the normal way you'd do it. The first one out is the one that gets 
uh, all the rewards that we just saw Isaac given. There's a reason that's all listed in this chapter in the same context as, as Jacob and Esau. It's, it's because we should know that, okay, Esau being the oldest, he's going to get everything from Isaac that Isaac got from Abraham. And God is clarifying that, no, actually, none of this happens by chance. I'm in control of all of it. I see all the things, and I'm going to tell you what's actually going to happen here. There are actually two nations in your womb, and the two peoples will be separated from your body. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And that's kind of cryptic, but at the same time, it's very clear what's going to be taking place. And that is, there's going to be this relationship between the two boys that is not, not uh, they aren't going to be like best buds. And uh, it's going to end up usurping the normal order of things. But it's because of what God is going to do. God is the one who's declaring this. And again, bear in mind, neither of these two boys have done anything to deserve the favor of God or to be rejected as the one in the case of the older. They're both in the womb, hanging out, knocking into each other. But then she delivers, and we see that the first came forth red and all over like a hairy garment and named him Esau. For whatever reason, God decides to send his, his uh, Isaac and Jacob back into this line. What you do see is the ability in these situations, to have two very different children born as twins. So it's very possible for one of them to express recessive genes, as we're seeing here. Um, We're having a redhead with a traditional Semitic boy born from the same womb, and that's that's totally within the realm of possibility. It's not not, not a miracle here that's taking place, but certainly is still in the hand of God. And then we see this picture that has already appeared of what's going to take place in the future. We see the holding of Esau's heel by Jacob, the usurper, or Jacob, uh, the one who supplants. We see the, um, the one who takes away is already behaving in such a way that you, it gives a picture that this is naturally who Jacob is. This is what Jacob does. You have to remember that Jacob's mother... Jacob's uncle, Laban, is going to demonstrate this same behavior. And again, last week we talked about the fact that I'm pretty sure that's what Laban's goal was in keeping Rebekah around longer, was to actually be deceitful and, and, uh, and upset the plans of Eliezer. But Jacob, so, so Jacob is just demonstrating some of those same characteristics. And we're going to see that in his mother as well when it comes to getting the blessing from their father. So we see this natural, this, this Jacob who we can all agree of the day he's born and his head has just been squeezed to the size of a, a, a baseball, um, grabbing onto his brother's heel. This is not intentional. This is not something that he himself is going, I'm going to grab his heel to show that I will usurp him someday. Not happening. So verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. And this is just going to go through, hey, these two are very, very different. We've covered that thus far. They were different before they had any inclination to be different. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. 
When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the line's going to get passed through Isaac, but which one? We have very different boys here on multiple levels, including the fact that they're loved differently by their parents. And there's no way the kids didn't know it. So what what is fueling the love of the two parents? Why is it that Jacob love that, that Isaac loves Esau? Okay, maybe firstborn. That's, he's a man's man. He's a hairy boy. I like the hairy one. Look at that beard. He can grow a great beard. We can laugh, but, uh, and I can talk about them because they're not here, and I try not to do that. But you look at my two boys, and one of them's got like, whew, He's got a, the most magnificent beard. I'm so jealous. And the other one is like his father, and he can't hardly grow whiskers. And uh, they're, they're very different children. And, and we, we laugh because when Jack was probably two weeks old, I told Ethan, Ethan, you need to be nice to this one because he's going to be bigger than you someday. And they were the same size at birth. It's not, they weren't huge difference. Yeah. And so... It's that, but you could just tell Jack was going to be a big boy, and he just keeps getting bigger. That hasn't changed yet, um, but he's doing it on purpose. I guess that makes it okay. Um, but we see these two very, very different children here, very different boys. Their parents are favoring them based on their own personal likes and dislikes. It's not because, because remember that that God has already selected which one is going to have the birthright. God has already not only foresawn, but he's going to be in control of this whole situation as it plays out. And that is not what's going on between uh, Rebecca and Isaac here as they look on favor with the different children and, and favor one over the other one and actually put themselves in conflict with each other over that. This is, not, this is mankind trying to usurp what is going to take place for their own benefit versus God stepping in and doing what is right for all eternity. There is a huge difference between God saying, Jacob have I loved and Esau I have hated and, and Rebekah loving Jacob. Rebekah likes Jacob probably because he's around more and has some of the same skills and wanted to learn from his mother and, and have uh, and just made more sense to her and and Jacob and Isaac or Esau and Isaac have a have an understanding in the same way of their thing, of their perspectives but that's not the god perspective that's not the overarching sovereignty of god perspective of things that even goes beyond just knowing how these boys are going to turn out so god's favor is not based on either one of them having specific characteristics that He's decided to love or disdain. But instead, it's on his preordained outcome and foreknowledge. Go back to when, why, why did God love David? Because he was a man after God's own heart. Well, 
to clearly define what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart. Jay, what does that mean? It means, God chose that means the heart of God is the one who chose him. Why is David a man after my own heart? Because he's an adulterer murderer? No, it's because he is the one that I have put my favor on and I am the one, if my heart desires him to be king of Israel and the line to flow through David. We're, we're seeing the same thing here. God's favor is not based on the outward expressions and, and behaviors, thank goodness. Can you imagine if you, the favor of God fell upon you because of your behavior? That would be, yeah, it wouldn't happen. I'm sorry, it wouldn't happen to me. I deserve none of what he's given me that is good. What is interesting here is that Esau shows himself to be a fool. Again, we see that God knew what was going to take place at the same time. And it's hard to sit, teach through these things without sounding like I'm contradicting myself. But all I can do is teach what Scripture is telling us. So, turns out that, that Esau is a fool. Jacob then shows himself to be shrewd like his mother and his uncle. Again, tripping up Esau here. And there's no comment here that Esau stood up from dinner and says, I despise my birthright and walk out. And walks out. Instead, it's the fact his behavior shows that he despises his birthright. That is a huge statement in this context. Remember, this is about the land of promise and the line that will bring the seed. When Esau despises his birthright, those are the things he's despising. He's despising the idea that I would be the one through whom the promise would be carried and I would be the one to inherit the land. That I would be the one that this, the nation of Israel comes from. Those are all the things that Esau is actively rejecting here in exchange for a bowl of lentil soup. So then we go to 26, 1 through 5 then. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine, which had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. So if we go to the map, um, it goes to Gerar, the king of the Philistines, uh, this Abimelech is mentioned back in, what, 21? Probably the, same, probably the same king, although Abimelech kind of means king. Um, and so it's possible it's a son, but probably the same king. Um, and the Lord appeared to, uh, appears to Isaac and says to him, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all the lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all of these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. That is the birthright that Esau rejected. Right after we're told Esau rejects his birthright, we get a picture of what exactly that means. So uh, rather than go down to Egypt, God says, no, I want, you can go to the land of the Philistines here along the coast. It would be the southern coast there of the Mediterranean Sea, if the map were up. But um, that's where he's going into that area. 
rather than all the way down into Egypt because God still wants them established in the land. Um, Now he will send them to Egypt in the future, but for right now he wants them to stay put. And again, he now turns to Isaac and gives him the promises that he gave to his father as well. It's all about the land. It's all about the line. It's all about the promises to Abraham now are given to Isaac. Not only did Isaac receive all that his father had, but he also receives the promises that were made to Abraham. And in verse 5, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. We all know Abraham was not perfect. In fact, we're about to be reminded vividly of where Abraham was last noted to be a failure. When he was in the same land and his denying Sarah as his wife because of fear. And yet, what's noted here is the obedience that God saw in him. That because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws... So God is giving these promises based on Abraham's obedience. The blessing is tied to obedience, but certainly not to perfection. In our own lives, as we look around at our blessings, it would be, a, it would be wrong for us to say, well, God blesses me because I do right. Therefore, if I do right, God's going to give me good stuff. God will make me rich like Abraham. Um, well, if, the, if there's a one-to-one correlation, we're in trouble because we, like Abraham, all sin and fall way short of deserving any blessing. So the blessing, while tied to obedience, it's not tied to our own perfection. Not tied to our own perfection at all. And then we see that the reason this is is because God is going to use an imperfect person not just to bless his own descendants and himself, but also all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And we should rejoice at that idea because as I've mentioned before, not any of us that I know of here are Jewish descent. Certainly it's possible. But it gives the whole world here is going to get blessed by the fact that the seed is going to come through the people of Abraham. So verse... Verse 6 then. So Isaac lived in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. Let's see, how far do I need to go? 11. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out, through, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. Abimelech says, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. So if you turn back to chapter 21, and we find... Oh, that's the covenant. Oh, did I do it again? Ah! 
20. So if we go back to chapter 20, um, we see a similar situation with Abraham and Sarah. Um, And we see in verse 3 there, God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself say, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech sees Isaac now in chapter 26. Isaac and Rebekah and says, you two are acting more like husband and wife. Why didn't you not tell me this? Don't you understand? I can get killed for that. Somebody else could have done something and get killed for that. Apparently Abimelech knows the scriptures better than, knows the word of God, not the scriptures, knows the word of God better than Isaac does. Abimelech knows what happens when God's chosen or messed with. And here um, he brings that to Isaac and says, hey, wait a second here, you're going to get us killed. And so then he also knows after seeing Abraham greatly blessed back in 20 and 21 that uh, they need to treat this person with great respect. And so he tells everyone, don't touch this man, don't touch his wife, leave them alone. Then verse 12, now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and great households so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and if you go back to chapter 21, it mentions those, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. So we see this incredible blessing of Isaac by God to the point where the Philistines are jealous and know that he's too powerful for them. So not only are his his crops doing great, but his animals are multiplying, his servants are multiplying, they're becoming a great people, much greater than even Abraham. So he basically says, you got to get out of here. Um, we don't need you around. You're going to become more powerful than we are. And that's, that's a real issue. So please be on your way. Back in Genesis 21, 22 through 34, Abimelech makes a covenant with Abraham because they see God is blessing Abraham in much the same way he's blessing Isaac. And to clarify uh, that, um, there, was a, there were disagreements about a well and Abraham digs a well and gives some sheep and uh, as a, a way of saying, yeah, this is definitely my well. And then they plant the tamarisk tree. And we touched on that back then. Um, but that's the backstory here. There's already a covenant between Abraham and Abimelech. And now there is, there's strife flaring up between Abimelech and Isaac as well. Almost, almost word for word, the same situation taking place. Um, but God says, you know what, I'm going to bless you anyway. So we go to verse 18, and Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father, and the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given him. But when Isaac's servants dug the well in the valley and found there was found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. 
So he named the well Essek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over it too. So he named it Sitna. And he moved away from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth for he said, at last the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land. So we see God continuing to bless continuing to bless uh, Isaac as the Philistines are pushing him out. And I think it's just to clarify here that, that God is going to be the one who's blessing Isaac. It's not going to be a blessing from the people in the land. Um, and also to remind us that they don't yet occupy the land. They don't have the land yet. It still belongs to these other nations. So verse 23, and then he went up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. So they finally come to a place of rest and they're able to dig a well and they're able to to settle in this part of the land and they're able to be fruitful here. And God tells him exactly why that is. He appears to him and says, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So God is making it clear that it's not because of Isaac that they found water and they found a good place to dwell. It is not because of uh, Abimelech giving it to him, but it's because God is doing it. And God is doing it for the sake of his servant Abraham. God is doing it because he promised Abraham the people will be in this land and they'll be a great people. And so God is saying, I am the one who fulfills this. Also on a side note here, we see that God is declaring himself to be the God of, of his father Abraham. And in the New Testament, we see that clarified that that's because he's the God of the living. Abraham must still be alive, Correct though not physically so, spiritually, his spirit must still be alive and must still be interacting with God himself. God is the God of the living, not just the dead. And the promises he makes to Abraham don't just end when Abraham dies, they carry on because he still has to fulfill the promises to Abraham. They don't stop just because he's died. Because Abraham himself has continued on, God must fulfill the promises he made to him as Abraham's soul continues on. So the, the Philistines then, verse 26, Abimelech come to him, came to him from Gerar with his servant, or with his advisor Ahuz, and Philco, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have not done to you and, and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace you are now the blessed of the lord and he made them a feast and they ate and drank in the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths then Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace and it came about at the same time that Isaac's servants came in and they told him about the well which they had dug and they said, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So the blessing that comes to Abraham or to Isaac is to the extent where now this nation that kicked them out, kept filling in their wells, kept fighting with them over 
the wells until they got far enough away that, okay, you're far enough away. Well, now we see that even though you're no longer in the area that we control, you are still going to be an issue. And they show up kind of hat in hand, kind of in, in a delegation there to appease Isaac. And Isaac takes note of it and says, you guys hate me. Why are you coming here in peace? And they explain that they see clearly what God has done for them. They can clearly see the blessing that is on them from the Lord. In spite of all their efforts, uh, God continues to bless these people. And then it's interesting, they say, we didn't touch you. No, you didn't. Um, In that sense, they did no harm to them, but they certainly pestered them and pushed them and pushed them and pushed them until they were gone and in the location they were at. But again, we see the, the story here is defined back in 24 that God then gives Isaac a well in which he can dig, have water, and they can settle there and uh, be very fruitful and their flocks and everything are going to multiply and his wealth is going to increase. So again, God establishes them in the land, in a place where they themselves are now about to, in the next generation, expand even further as a people. And then we end this passage with turning back to Esau as kind of a bridge for what's going to take place uh, between Jacob and Esau in chapter 27. And we see that Esau was 40 years old when he married Judith, the daughter of Barry the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So again, the importance is to marry within the line and stay, stay pure, quote-unquote, to that line And Esau shows again, first he despises his birthright, and then he despises the notion of of keeping the line as it was supposed to be here at the beginning. And that that statement in 35, to those of you who have raised beyond 16-year-olds, that they brought, the, the wives of Esau brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah, those of you who have children, who are seriously dating and courting or, or looking at marriage and who they hang out with or not looking at marriage but committed to one person, know the grief that can come uh, from that. Some of us in our own lives can look and say either, yes, I remember bringing my parents grief by who I was dating or uh, vice versa. I remember the joy in my parents when they saw who I was dating that brought them more relief than grief. Esau is showing once again the grief that uh, he is bringing to his parents. It just reminds you that they would have understood when he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew that they would have known about that as well. And you can imagine the grief that that brought Isaac already in the life of Esau. It says, you did what? You sold it for what? Um, It makes no sense. So again, the keys that we see here is that there is a line that God is keeping pure as far as moving forward from generation to generation. He has a plan to bring about the seed. And for right now, keeping them there in that land is very important as that happens. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the fact that these are real people, that this is a historical event that's taking place, that... uh, 
these places we can go and visit, we can see them and know that they're real, Lord, and just uh, even the people that this was delivered to, the Jews, as they were getting ready to cross over into the promised land, Lord, they would have known these stories, they would have known uh, the places that they were going to see and uh, the promises of you, Lord, that you would establish them in the land and that you would be the one who provides for them, that the land wouldn't be given up uh, by the people of the land to them. They wouldn't be the ones to make them a mighty nation. It wouldn't be uh, just because of chance, Lord. It'd be because your hand was on things. It wouldn't even be because of their goodness that you would bless them, Lord. Lord, I pray that we'd see that ourselves in our own lives, that uh, the good that happens and the bad that happens to us, Lord, it's all in your hand, Lord, not because of how what a great and awesome, perfect people we are, Lord, but because uh, it is your will. And I pray that we would respond in obedience much the way Abraham did, that we would love to be part of your plan and your will, and that we would show our own obedience to you uh, given that opportunity. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.